0: Good morning, good morning, man. It's so good to see everybody here today. We started last Sunday with a series called Counterfeit Gospel. And Will, I'm sure, adequately explained kind of the foundation for that. The whole just simple truth of it is that our culture has bought into an awful lot of confusing lies And here's the problem, the culture has kind of spilt those lies over into the church and we've absorbed them kind of like a sponge. And so a lot of ways, and I don't mean our individual church by the way, I mean the church in North America, like the Christian church in the United States. So a lot of people who say they're Christians really don't necessarily follow what the Bible teaches anymore. And that's super confusing since the Bible is the foundation of everything a Christian should believe. And so, we're going to talk about for the next few weeks just those lies the culture tells us, and oftentimes lies that Christians actually believe and begin to promote. Um, Next week, we're going to talk in particular about kind of the whole lie of trust your heart, follow your heart, those kinds of things. Today, the lie is maybe one that you might think initially, well, that's not bad, or that doesn't sound like it's incorrect. But I think as we walk through this, we'll understand. And that lie is God helps those who help themselves. Now, that sounds like a good thing, right? And we'll talk about that as we walk. But here, in every case, uh, I often use this kind of as an example. Um, if, If the Bible is in the center, all right? So the Scripture is in the center, not the right, not the left, but the center, then what happens in our culture is that uh, there are two extremes in every case. And, uh, and, and there is this, this left drift that you could say is an extreme that takes the Scriptures and manipulates it to focus primarily, if not exclusively, on love and grace. Now, if I were to ask the question, hey, is love and grace in the Scriptures? Absolutely. In fact, God is love. I mean, there's no way we can deny That love is the gospel, certainly. The gospel contains the message of love. God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were sinners, Christ still died for us. So yes, gospel is love, but gospel is not just love. Gospel is also truth. And so there is another group of people in our day who communicate exclusively truth now they wouldn't say it's exclusive they would say well maybe primarily truth secondarily love but but they would and their actions kind of communicate that it's really all about the truth and so they say a lot of right things in the very wrong way and so people who desperately need to be uh receiving the truth reject the truth because they're not hearing the truth in love here's the whole point really in a lot of ways of the whole series but Primarily, the message of the gospel is not an either-or thing. Uh, the gospel, the complete gospel, let me say it like this, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, not the counterfeit, the true gospel of Jesus Christ is a balance of truth and love. In fact, Scripture makes it very clear. Speaking of Jesus himself in John chapter 1, verse 14, here's what it says about Jesus. It actually says he was full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of both grace and truth. And so we can reason, all right? This is a reasonable statement based on those facts that if someone is following Jesus, it's not an either-or scenario. It's not a, I've got to be gracious and ignore the truth or compromise the truth, or it's not I want to be truth and and just who cares if they get mad and who cares if they don't come to Jesus. They need to hear the truth. Is that true? They need to hear the truth, but they don't need to hear it without the love. And so with all that in mind, that the balance of God's word teaches us what we should do and how we should approach the culture. And so today I want to kind of preface it. I don't want you to receive anything I say in a spirit of hate. I don't want you to hear what I say. Even if you disagree with it, you may say, I'm going to disagree with something you say only if you disagree with the Word of God. Y'all all all right? (laughs) Yeah, because I'm not going to come up with any like super opinion thing here. I'm not going to be political, even though a lot of the things I'm going to talk about could if somebody wanted to like look through a lens of, a critical lens, trying to find fault. Here's the thing. The Word of God speaks to things about political and cultural issues let me say this that the right and the left get wrong so you're never going to hear me say I'm going to beat up on the Republicans and not beat up on the Democrats I'm going to equally offend everybody all right and so this is the case today I don't want you to hear anything I say and say well Wayne just don't love people and I definitely would never want you to hear anything that I would say that would lead you to believe that God doesn't love you no matter who you are look God loves you more than you could even imagine And so we want to communicate the truth, the truth. I'm not going to skirt around it, but I'm going to speak the truth in love. The truth of the matter is our culture is messed up, messed up. It's messed up worse than you think it is. Here's the thing. Usually we look through the lens of the world's messed up through our political lens. Please forget that right now. Your politics is secondary. The gospel of Jesus Christ is primary. And so as we think about these things today, I want to share some statistics with you that should shock you. I'm afraid they won't. And probably even a greater fear is there may be people who are regular attenders of our church, probably many people who will watch this online, who may hear something I say in a critique and actually say, well, I believe that. Let me just say, if you believe the things I'm about to critique... You are believing something contrary to the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's some statistics that a Barna survey unearthed about professing Christians in America. Why do you say professing Christians? Because anybody can say they're a Christian, right? So when you survey people, if I were to say, hey, are you an automobile? Some people could say yes, right? That doesn't make them an automobile. So just because I say, are you a Christian, and they say yes, it doesn't necessarily mean they're a true Christian. So these are people who, when polled, said they're professing and practicing Christians. Of those surveyed, 61% agreed with ideas rooted in a new spirituality and an example of this is basically 30% of professing Christians believe that all people pray to the same God. And so that misunderstanding at least, most, mostly a massive heretical thought though, is confusing and has, has really come out in the form of this new spirituality. It's a trend in our day. A lot of people want to mesh everything together. And they would love to say the people in a cubicle across from them who, who worship a different God in a different religion, let's just use one as an example and say uh, Hinduism uh, or let's just go and say uh, uh, Muslim, the faith, an Allah, uh, that, that Allah and Jehovah are one God and we all just really pray to the same God. Let me just say, that's not what the Bible teaches, all right? And it's going to be really super elementary today. And maybe some people are going to be like, oh, really? I think it's important. Look, that you understand the Bible actually, you look at the Old Testament in particular and start thinking through stories that you've probably heard. Think about when Elijah prayed for fire to fall from heaven. There were 400 prophets of Baal. Baal is a false false god, all right? He wasn't real. And these guys were, were calling out and they were cutting themselves. They were praying to God. And Baal didn't do nothing. Why? Because Baal didn't exist, but but Elijah prayed to the one true God, and God brought down fire from heaven. So just because somebody believes in God doesn't mean they believe in your God. Okay? They don't believe in the one true God. So this is a simple little thing, but it's important for us to understand that we do not all pray to the same God. That's not true. That's not biblically accurate. 54% of people who profess to be Christians hold to a postmodern view, or at least really begin to attach themselves to postmodern ideologies and and if you are like what in the world is postmodernism that sounds really crazy just to be real simple it's a critique basically easiest definition it's just a critique of rationalism or objectivity and so i've been studying this kind of stuff for like 20 years when i was when amy and i first went to seminary they were talking about how postmodernism was going to take over the world it has all right, the ideology of postmodern thought has taken over. And it is part of what we struggle with in our culture. And look, if you're 15 years old today and you're like, I don't know half these words he's talking about, you're going to get this. Listen, because postmodern thought tells you that you can believe something and it be true. And then your friend over here can believe something totally contradictory and it be true too. It's like, it's like a critique against objectivity, It's a critique against rationalism. It's a critique against realistic thought, like truth. It's a critique against the idea that truth is truth and fallacy is fallacy. Now, again, this may be something you've never really thought about. Listen to this. Up can't be down. Why is that? Because two opposing Truths can't be truth simultaneously. It's either up or it's down. It's, you're either broke or you're not, right? You got money or you don't have money. You, you either are good looking. No, I'm kidding. I'm not gonna go there. But, you know, it's either, it's either true or it's not true. I mean, we get this in, in our own, again, subjective bubbles, but we want to define the terms in our culture. Our culture has taught us that we have, listen, subjective Truth, that it's subjective. My subjective opinion and my experience, my personal experience, can make it true for me, even if it's not true for you. That is a lie straight from hell, guys. That is not okay. Christians do not believe that. Well, Wayne, I do. Christians do not believe that. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, believe that truth is truth. And we don't have the right, we don't have the authority to change or manipulate what is actually true. But postmodern thought has permeated the church culture in our country so that, and I'll give you a very real example next week. I'm planning to if I have the guts to. I'm going to give you examples of how churches have given themselves over to subjective truth. But here's the thing. The danger for the church is that without objective truth, the gospel is nothing but a call to a clubhouse to get together, to get encouraged, and have a pep talk every Sunday. There's no power in a gospel that isn't completely true. It's just, it's just absolute. You ask, listen to this. I'm, I'm being very serious. You ask any Muslim in the world who is a true Muslim, they will say that no one who isn't a Muslim is going to heaven. Why is that? Because they believe in objective truth too. They just think we are all wrong and they're all right. So understand, this is not the only belief system that believes in objective truth, but that is Christianity. Christianity is a belief in one truth. There's other problems though in our culture that are kind of seeping over into the church. Twenty-nine percent of professing Christians believe ideas based on secularism. Now the idea of secularism is is basically that there's a priority system and that in the priority system scientific method has become primary and God's word becomes secondary. Let me just say that's not what a Christian believes. A Christian doesn't believe that the Word of God is subject to science, or that God, more importantly, is subject to science. Why? Because God actually made science, not Al Gore. I, I'm just joking. That was a bad. That was the internet he created. I'm sorry. Only old people will get that joke. But, needless to say, God created science. There's nothing that is scientific that God actually didn't actual ordain. He's the prime mover. He's the first cause. He's the causeless cause. So look, we're not anti-science. I absolutely believe science. And why? Because science is just a result of God. Um, but here's the thing. Sometimes we take scientific method and we try to prioritize it above God. And that's what a secularist does. A secularist actually says, I believe science over faith. And at the end of the day, here's the irony of a secularist logic. A secularist logic will actually say that with one, on one side of his mouth. He'll say, you know what, science is science. Trust the science. Everybody will say, trust the science. But at the same time, they're inconsistent. A secularist, a true secularist, is inconsistent if they then go to another extreme and say, well, I trust the science until the science contradicts what I want it to say. And there's many cases when this is the case. And again, I'm not. Uh, this is not politics. This is, I'm trying to give you real-life cultural examples. Let me give you a real-life real one. The, the idea of the gender controversy. Now, I call it a controversy. It's so confusing why it's a controversy. But here's what I want you to understand. You may say, oh, I can't believe you're talking about this. He's about to step on a landmine. I can't believe it. But here's what you need to understand. The fact of the matter is, Gender is actually part of the study we used to take in, class, in school called biology. You know, biology is actually a form of science, and science actually says there is gender. I mean, I, this is not crazy, okay? So with, with that, here's the deal. I'm just saying we pick and choose. Not just people accuse Christians of picking and choosing. Every belief, belief system is inconsistent when it goes to say, hey, I'm going to believe this is the truth unless I don't agree with it. And so when, when the science doesn't match what I feel, then I'm going to believe this. Now here's the thing. Listen to what's happened. This is what's happened. What's happened is that's postmodernism meets secularism. So postmodernism, subjective truth, meets secularism, science only. And here's what's all messed up. Then we got Christians who say, I want to sprinkle a little Jesus on it, you know? And so so we got postmodern secularist Christians who believe everything and as a result believe nothing. You're okay, I'm okay. And I'm just wanting you to hear I love you too much to let you believe that trash. It's not okay to believe anything. It's not okay to believe in any God. It's not okay to follow your heart. We'll talk about that next week. And it's not okay to believe that somehow you're the prime mover in your life and that God is going to help you just because you're helping yourself. Because what that does is it makes you the central character of the story, it makes you the one who the world revolves around, and God's just your helper, God's just your advisor. Well, I'm living my life, I've got this plan, I'm checking on God, hey, I'm, hey, I'm a Christian. So I'm gonna call out to God, and I'm gonna say, hey God, is, this, is my plan okay with you? Hey God, I've got it all mapped out, here's, what, here's the college I wanna go to, is that cool with you? you, you like my plan? See, that's the way that we think, if we're not careful, that's how Christians ought to be. That's not how Christians ought to be. That's basically, hey, God will help those who help themselves. I'm gonna do my part and then I'm gonna ask God, hey God, would, would you help and bless what I'm doing? That's like God being the secondary influence. Here's the deal. God is our first source. So above all things else that we hear today, God is our first source. And the reason we don't embrace this idea exclusively anyway that God helps those who help themselves is because even though that might feel very american and moral of us to say because does god honor hard work absolutely is god going to bless you if you work hard and and uh, well you, you better work hard if you want to eat and have a house for sure and is god going to honor that i think god's going to honor hard work absolutely he's not going to honor laziness so there are some truths related to this, but the problem with saying God's going to help those who help themselves, what it does is it makes us the first cause. It makes us the first source. It makes us the one who starts first by helping themselves, and then saying, if we help ourselves, God is going to help me. And in a way, I want you to listen to this, and don't turn me off, okay, because I'm going to say a word that some of y'all are going to immediately go, well, I thought that was a good thing. I say that all the time. And that is like, if you ever are guilty of, and I say guilty because you shouldn't do it. If you're ever guilty of saying, well, that's just karma. I believe in karma. I believe in karma. (laughs) Don't raise your hand, all right? I believe in karma. What goes around comes around. So I want to do this. I'm going to do good. Why am I going to do good? Because I want good to come back to me. What is that? That's a work. That's a works-based logic. Plain and Simple. You know what separates Christian theology from every other belief system in the world? You don't believe that what you did saves you. You don't believe that anything you've done earned you salvation in heaven. But karma, actually, this idea, this this philosophy that has its roots in New Age and Hinduism and all kinds of other belief systems, that, that logic is basically a logic that teaches if you do good, good will come back to you. And you know what, hey, if not in this life, here's what people who believe in reincarnation, in the life to come. And you may have just heard somebody talk about karma. Maybe your favorite singer talks about karma and you just thought that was cool. Look, Christians believe in sowing and reaping, which may be in some people's minds similar. It's not really that similar because at the end of the day, you know where you get the seed to sow? God. You didn't even got seed to sow unless God gave it to you. So we don't believe in any system that depends on us as the prime source. This is not radical Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. And so when we come back to the word, here's the thing. We understand God is our first source. He's the one who starts it all, and it changes everything about how we believe and everything about how we view the culture and how we reach the lost. And so let's read now. I know that's a big introduction. Most of it has been random scriptures pulling in the introduction. But I want to look at Matthew 9. Turn and turn on your Bibles to Matthew 9, verse 9. We're going to read to 13, and it's the story of Jesus. If there's anybody we want to look at to follow, it's Jesus, right? So let's read this passage, and then we're going to get into three specific things we see in the text, and then we'll, we'll hopefully have some application to take home. Matthew 9, 9, Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and he followed Jesus. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when Pharisees saw this, Pharisees were the religious elitist of the day, when the Pharisees saw that Jesus was chilling uh, with some sinners, uh, they didn't like it. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said... Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, your translation may say sinners, to repentance. So this is the word of God. This is what Jesus came to do. He came and he called Matthew. Matthew's one example of the 12 that he called. But he called Matthew out of a sinful practice. You may say, tax collectors? Does that mean the IRS are terrible, sinful people, no worse than you, right? In this case, Matthew was actually part of a tax system that was, that was crooked. <laughs> you may say, okay, sounding like the IRS. Not really, all right? This system was much more of a, a system based on, on thievery. And so the Romans would find Jews to be tax collectors and they would say, you collect this much tax and the tax collectors would add to that amount and collect extra for themselves. They were thieves, all right? And so that's why they always lumped tax collectors with sinners in the Bible. They were thieves. They were crooks. And so when Jesus is hanging out with sinners, it messed with the religious people, man. They did not understand it. They didn't get it. Why? Because religious folk aren't supposed to hang out with sinners. Religious people have to separate ourselves, misinterpreted, honestly. A lot of people misinterpret this today. Holiness is not... Is not saying don't hang out with people far away from God because then you have to ignore the Great Commission in the heart of Jesus, right? So it doesn't say don't hang out with people who don't believe like you. In fact, you should do the opposite. You should hang out with people who don't believe like you. Just don't allow them to influence you in their direction. Do everything you can to bring them to the grace of God. Under the blood of Jesus. But here's what we do know. God doesn't make us better than we would be. He makes us everything we are. And I think that's the difference in our belief systems. When we read this passage. And we understand that Jesus came not for perfect people. He came for sick people. And that's the good news. The first point here is that. Hey you're sick. You're sick. I'm sick. So when we hear. Jesus came for sick people. It's good news for you because you are sick. You're not perfect. You're sin sick. You're far away from God prior to Jesus. And so it's not it, it, this is why we don't condemn people who aren't Christians. This is why we don't we're not judgmental jerks. It's why we're not hypocrites who are self-righteous. It's because we understand the only thing that separates us from them is the grace of God. There's nothing about me that deserves to be saved. Jesus saved me. And so with that, I recognize I'm sick. Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 1 through 3. Paul says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus did what works couldn't do. Jesus did what karma couldn't do, all right? Jesus did what legalists couldn't do. Jesus did what the law couldn't do. You're trying to work your way to heaven, you're going to fail, Jesus has come and he actually broke it open, man. Jesus came and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves because he says God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus did what we couldn't do. So here's the deal. The gospel doesn't teach us to try harder and God will meet us halfway. That is not the gospel. The gospel is this. What you couldn't do for yourself, God did for you. What I could not do for myself, God did for me. And this is why we call it good news. (laughs) The good news of the gospel is that you didn't have to work for it and earn it. Jesus has done the work. So you are sick. Romans 5:12 says just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. What's that story right there Romans 5:12 Paul saying? When Adam sinned in the garden, all of us became sin sick. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Side note, super important. What that means is before Jesus saves us, we are, we are sinners and, and dead in our identity. You may say, well, why is that something important to point out? Because in our culture, when you're having conversations and you're trying to, in, in a loving way, please before God, hear me, never communicate the gospel in a hateful way. That's not how Jesus did it. So when you're sitting and you're having a conversation with somebody in a loving way trying to communicate the love of God to them and they were to possibly say, well, you're not, you don't understand me. Yeah, I know you want to say this is sin, but this isn't sin like an action I do. This is, this is part of who I am. And you may say, what are you talking about? Any number of things. But I'm sure some things come to your mind. People say, well, this is part of my identity. This is who I am. This is not something I do. And I would say... All sin is that way, guys. That's nothing new. And so the debate should never be, oh, it's it's not about identity. It's about an action. You're choosing to do that. It doesn't matter if they're at the end of the day, look, we're born sinners. And every one of us are going to be far away from God and have been far away from God until we came to faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, my favorite verse in the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. What's that mean? I was a dead man and Jesus brought me back to life. All right, I was by identity sinful. Not just some stuff I did. I wasn't going to hell because I disobeyed my mom and daddy. I was going to hell because I was identified with my sin because I had not embraced the grace of God. It was an identity issue. So, hey, that's good news if that's where you're at. If you think this is part of who you are, I would agree. Absolutely, sin is is part of our identity before we come to Jesus. But Christ makes us a new man. He makes you a new woman. And so with all of that, we understand, look, God has not just called us to be pretty good people. In our American culture, we're told, hey, I think everybody's kind of good. Everybody's got some good things about them. And, and, you know, Luke Bryan, are y'all country? I don't know if y'all like country or not, but Luke Bryan has a song, and I'm grateful to God. My kids actually, uh, we were going down the road first time we ever heard it, and they were like, well, that's not biblically accurate. You don't really expect your kids to say that. I was like, praise God, you're right. What was the song? I hope it's not some of your favorite songs. I believe most people are good. Most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. You ever heard that? Now, it is the week before Mother's Day. So everybody be like, oh, don't you love mama? Amen. Amen. That song does something to me, Wayne. I like that part. And most mamas are like, that's probably my, my favorite country song. I just love that one. Most mamas, that's me. Praise Jesus. I mean, if we don't watch it, we start swaying. I believe most people are good. Yes, Luke, sing it, brother. Yes. Power. Let me just tell you, you without Jesus are not good. I'm not. I'm not picking on you. I'm not good without Jesus. Next week, we'll dive into that more. But Look, we're not. Jesus picked us up out of a pit. And that's why we can't condemn the world. That's why we can't throw rocks at people. God forbid we forget where we were before Jesus saved us. Man, we didn't deserve heaven. We didn't deserve a relationship with God. And so there's got to be this balance where we're not going to compromise the truth of God's word, but we're also not going to hate lost people. We're going to care about people. We're going to love them. And so so Proverbs 4.12 says this, there is a way that seems right to a man that would be like a good man. Oh, yeah, most people are good. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's, way, it's the way to death. And so we understand Scripture teaches us that we are not naturally good. The culture has sold us a self-centered logic that refuses to admit our faults. In fact, not going to be popular here, but we have been conditioned to be victims in every case. In every case. Look, if... I won't even go there. I started using an example. I'm not going to because here's the deal. Every, every example is in your life. Every single day of your life, you're surrounded by victims. And guess what? Look in the mirror. Because we've begun to believe the lie that somehow we're the victim and that we're not guilty of anything and that there are no consequences to our actions. Look, we're conditioned to be the victim, but we resist admitting that we have a problem. What's the problem? You're sick. I'm sick. I am sin sick. Before Jesus, I was sin sick and bound for eternal punishment. But after Jesus, I'm saved. I still am a sinner. We still walk through this life imperfect. We have to constantly come back to the cross and say, God, would you give me the strength to be the man you've called me to be? To overcome, listen, to overcome my previous identity. Because I am no longer identified by sin and shame. I wanna be identified by Jesus Christ who paid for my sin. I am a Christ follower. I'm a Christian. Literally, first time the word was ever used little Christs. I'm a Christian. I wanna follow Jesus. So we are sick, but secondly, Jesus heals. This is the good news that once we admit we're sick, now this is the big problem. If you don't wanna admit you're sick, you can't be healed. If you don't want to admit you've got a problem called sin, then there's never going to be a day where you embrace the answer, the cure to your sickness. Because we are sick, Jesus heals. I want to read Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. It's not going to be on the screen, so if you want the reference, that's it. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. Listen to this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're sick. We've all gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's that mean? You are sick, but Jesus heals. Jesus offers us healing from our sickness of sin. Now, a lot of people think that Jesus came to be their helper and they have no problem saying, well, Jesus is, give me some of that Jesus. Yeah, remember, sprinkle a little Jesus on my postmodernism and my secularism and I'll be okay with that. I wanna be a Christian, I wanna go to church, but just don't get in my business over here. Let me be me, you know, let me follow my heart. Let me, uh, you know, don't insult my feelings and I'll be okay. I'll sprinkle some Jesus. But here's the deal. Jesus didn't come to be your helper, Jesus did not come to make your life better. Jesus came to heal you of your sin sickness. Jesus came to change your life. That's why he came. And here's the deal. We're all familiar with the miracles, the healings of Jesus, certainly. But the greatest healing that Jesus ever did was when he saved my soul. There's no close second. You may say, wait a minute, he he heals people of this, he heals people of that. The greatest miracle is to change life when he saves you. And so the counterfeit gospel teaches that God exists for you. But the Bible teaches that you exist for God. Completely opposite. We are sick, Jesus heals. But then finally, what do we do as a result of that, Wayne? We care. Because we remember how lost we were, and we, we experience the loving and the healing of our sin-sick soul. It changes the way that we respond to a lost and dying world. Wayne, why is our church so geared toward reaching lost people? Why do we want to plant new campuses? Why, when's, big, when's big enough big enough? Holy cow. I mean, I, I can hear people saying, the fact of the matter is, we just want to care and love people. We have a message we believe the world is hungry for. And we care about them enough to take them the message with a balance of grace and truth. And here's the thing in our day, that is a rare balance. We stand out not because we're special, we stand out because we care. We care enough about people to tell them the truth, but we care about them enough not to beat them over the head with truth, but to love them to Jesus. See, this is the answer, man. This is the call of God. This is Jesus sitting at dinner with sinners. If I ask you a question in closing, this is kind of a tough question, but I just wanna ask you, man, when you read a story like this and you see Jesus hanging out with sinners, and then you, receive, you see the Pharisees like criticizing Jesus. And they're just like, I just can't believe your teachers hanging out with sinners. I always want to ask the question you know, which one do I look most like? I mean, do I look most like Jesus? Or do I look most like those religious elitists who are self righteous and not full of grace and truth, but full of them? See, I'm afraid, man. It's a whole lot of Christians who are full of themselves. And if we're not careful, it's us. So I want to challenge you today to be the church. Because the truth is the church is the body of Christ in the world. And it exists to reach the lost, not to satisfy the saved. God's called us to sit with sinners. God's called us to speak truth in love. And it's so difficult in a world filled with counterfeit options to remember and depend on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. And I thank you for every man and woman in this room. And God, I pray you would take the things we've said and some of them really hard things God I don't pretend to be naive to think that they're not hard to hear And that some of us have to process even what we believe what we think things we've said God would you help us not to push back and get defensive Lord would you help me to hear from your Holy Spirit to confirm what it is you're, you're teaching us in your word God help us not to prefer the word of a lost world over the word of our Savior. Would you speak to us, teach us, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?